she will be like human. Then her mouth will be filled with laughter, and her tongue will with glad song. Then they will declare among the nations, Adonai has done great with, greatly with these. Adonai has done greatly with us. We will gladly. O Adonai, return our captivity like springs in the river. Those who carefully know will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seas walks along weeping, but will turn it in exaltation a bearer of his peace. Thank you, sir. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai and may all flesh bless his holy name forever. Amen. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Adonai for his goodness, kindness, endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Michael, while you're not doing anything, would you count and see if we have a mini? Behold, I am prepared and ready to perform the positive commandment of Birkat Hamazon. For it is said, you shall eat, you shall be satisfied, you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land which he gave you. Did you finish your counting? <laughs> Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Now I need a really new. We do. Thank you. We do. You heard it here first. <laughs> With permission of distinguished people present, let us bless our God, he's of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he's of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten and through whose goodness we live. Together. Blessed is he and blessed is his name. Yahushua, would you give us the uh, first one, sir? English? I prefer it, just uh, so I can follow along. Okay. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who nourishes the entire world in his goodness, <clears throat> with grace, with kindness, and with mercy. He gives nourishment to all flesh, for his kindness is eternal. And through his great goodness we have never lacked, and may we never lack nourishment for all eternity. For the sake of his great name, because he is God who nourishes and sustains all. And benefits all, and prepares food for all of his creatures that he has created. As it is said, will you open your hand and satisfy the desire for a living thing? Blessed are you, Adonai, who nourishes all. Amen. The other, Yehoshua. Please, sir. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given to our forefathers his heritage, a desirable, good, and spacious land, because you have removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Mitzrayim, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage. For your covenant that you sealed in our flesh, for your Torah that you taught us, and for your statutes that you have made known to us, for life, grace, and loving kindness that you granted us. And for the provision of food with which you have nourished and sustained us constantly, every day, in every season, and in every hour. Talk of the next page. Continue, please, sir. For all, Adonai, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of all the living, continuously for all eternity. As is written, and you shall eat, and you will be satisfied, and you, and you shall bless Adonai, our God, for the good land that he gave you. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King, for the land and for the nourishment. Amen. Nehemiah, if you'll give us a third one, sir. Have mercy, we beg you, Adonai, our God, on Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city, on Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called, our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us. Adonai, our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not needful, Adonai, our God, of the gifts of human hands, nor of their loans, but only of your hand that is full, open, holy, and generous that we not feel inner shame, nor be humiliated forever and ever. First paragraph in the picture. May it please you, Adonai our God, give us rest through your commandments and through the commandment of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you, to rest on it and be content on it in love as ordained by your will. May it be your will, Adonai our God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of our contentment. And show us, Adonai our God, the consolation of Zion, your city, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, city of your holiness, for you are the master of salvations and master of consolation. Bottom of the page, sir, bring it home. 
Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, soon and in our days. Blessed are you, Adonai, who rebuilds Jerusalem in his mercy. Amen. Amen. Mr. Murphy, if you would, sir, top of page 19. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, the Father, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, holy, the Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King was good and he does good for all. For every single day he did good, he does good, and he will do good to us. He was bountiful with us, he is bountiful well, he was bountiful with us, he is bountiful with us, and he will forever be bountiful with us. With grace and kindness and mercy, relief, salvation, success, blessing, health, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good. And all good things will never be So let's make sure that everyone knows that we agree with his statements coming up. Please the compassionate one. May he reign over us forever. Amen. The compassionate one. May he be blessed in heaven and earth. Amen. The compassionate one. May he be praised throughout all generations. May he be glorified through us forever to the ultimate ends and be honored through us forever and for all eternity. Amen. Amen. The compassionate one. May he sustain us in honor. Amen. The compassionate one. May he break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us erect to our land. Amen. The compassionate one. May he send us abundant blessings to this Oh, you have a guitar? No, no, I have a little beat to it, you know? A little beat. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're really pressing it. You're really pressing it. You just think because you're cute you can do this. I can do this. And she gets away with it every time. Yeah, there is no only tomorrow if you come. We do have a meeting. I'll come up with something special. Not the church, but something. Um, so tonight, tonight, I hope that we'll hear about um, why we actually read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. We're going to read the book. We're going to find out why do we celebrate the giving of the Torah when the Torah doesn't even say that. That's not what it says Shavuot is about. It's more of a festival harvest thing. So we're going to, I hope we'll talk about that. Um, but uh, I, I can't wait. I appreciate you opening your home for um, Again, two weeks from today, last Shabbat in June. I hope we'll all be here. Greg Upham has already RSVP'd. Being his kind of way back from First Fruits of Zion Shavuot Conference in Hudson, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Jeez, capital of the world. And uh, so we'll, we should have a minion then as well. Anything else I'm missing? How many of you got a chance to talk to uh, Frederick, Karen, and TJ? Almost everybody. Rebecca? No! Okay. All right. So you guys need to tackle her on the way out. There it is. There it is. All right. Joshua, if you would be so kind, sir. Thank you so much. Okay, so we are in Bami Bar, which is literally translated Sorry, in the wilderness. Girl over here. Uh, <laughs> um, because it takes place in the wilderness, this is one of the really explanatory <laughs> names of the parasha. Uh, this one, it's funny because in, in Hebrew we call it Bami Bar, the wilderness, because they are in the wilderness. English is a similarly understandable name for the book. It's called Numbers. We have lots of numbers. Um, those that's of you who that's like, the name of it in the Septuagint. Uh, right, okay, there we go. And if you, like, if you like uh, math, you probably like most of these numbers, but there is probably one section uh, in this parasha that you do not like as much if you're into math. We'll get to that later. Um, but the uh, one of the things that stands out about numbers is that the types of numbers sometimes change. And uh, the counting is all about census taking, but it deals with people of different ages. And the primary focus is the 20 years of age and up. Uh, that's, the, that's the group of men who are military age, which uh, is interesting because, of course, that differs from our own military standards. We set people at 18. Um, the Torah talks about 20. But don't let them drink until 21. I know. <laughs> you can go fight for our country, but you have at least three years before, you know, we'll let you have that beer when you get home. But the... Um, but that's kind of, the, but it's interesting because in uh, in our culture, I feel like a lot of the numbers are kind of arbitrary. I mean, you know, how do you know that someone at 18 is, is old enough to be a soldier? How do you know that someone at 21 is old enough to drink? Uh, 25 to rent a car, 35 to rent the president. You know, all these different numbers we throw out there. But then in the Jewish system, the numbers, uh, apparently there's been a lot of tradition about numbers. Um, and it comes to 20, it's interesting because 20 years old, according to the Perkei vote. This gets pointed out in some of the commentary that uh, that is the age of taking a profession. That's when you start working. Um, and if you notice, the 20 years old actually ties in neatly into last week's parasha. Uh, if you were reading through all the different types of vows, there was also another very similar range. Uh, young men between the ages of 5 and 20 had a very special uh, number attached to them, which means the number of shekels. It was, if you look at, again, if you're a math person, math is fun. Um, that the, uh, the proportions are all off because 5 to 20 is a very important age range, apparently. They, uh, they get 
they have more value assigned to that age than should be. It's more value in proportion to the women at the same age. It's more value in proportion to the men who are older and the men who are younger. It's all off. So it's like 5 to 20 is a very special time. Um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in talking about this parsha, points out that the stages up until 20 are a stage of growth, a stage of planting, a stage of learning, study. It is a stage in which you are supposed to be preparing to be 20 when you have to join the army, so to speak. And it's important, I think, um, we've got a couple of young men in this room who are in a, above bar mitzvah age, but not quite 20. Um, and I think it's really important to make the most of that time. I mean, I think the time that I spent during that stage studying, uh, doing studies my dad had written, doing precept studies and whatnot. It's amazing how many of those Bible studies stuck with me. And it um, shows. What? And, it, what? and it shows. Well, thank you, Rupeshem. But more importantly, um, I mean, even, uh, that, that's, that it's important to invest that time. And then on the side to that, on the flip side of that, I, uh, I spent most of my, uh, that age range sitting inside in the chair, and that also shows. So um, it's amazing that like when you, uh, it's, about, it's about the investment, and you don't think about it. I think when you're between the ages, especially between the ages of 13 and 20, it's hard to realize that anything matters. You feel invincible, you feel like the world is never going to end, you feel like you can do anything forever, because, well, let's face it, especially if you're a young man between the ages of 13 and 20, you are basically invincible and nothing can touch you. It's, it's, it's incredible. And once you start to realize in the early 20s that's no longer true, it can be a little depressing. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that you have a gift when you're in that stage. We all really have this gift. It's, it's, it varies from time to time, and it changes. It gets harder as we get older. But the point of this, 20, of this thing is not just the young men in the room, but the idea is you need to be making the most of your time when you have opportunities to prepare. You need to be studying, learning, growing, but doing it for a purpose. Because the tw- one of the things the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out is that these 20-year-olds were meant to go into the army. This is why they were doing all the study and the prep and the, and the work and all that stuff. It wasn't just to fill their heads and to look really cool and smart in front of all their friends or in front of you know, all their friends' parents. If you're a homeschooler, that's probably not the case. But the point is that um, it, it was for a purpose because once you turn 20, you're supposed to be a man. You're supposed to be taking care of a family. You're supposed to be working. You're supposed to be in the army. You have responsibilities. That's why you prepare. You prepare for preparation is not just for yourself, it is to, for a use. Because one of the things about the, the Jewish way of thinking in the Hebrew scriptures, it's all about what you do. It's not just about building up knowledge. It's not, a, it's not an intellectual exercise. Um, it's not even a physical exercise. It's not about just the exercise. It's about doing it. So um, if you think about this, this age range, it's important to remember that this was when they were doing it. So now, all these men, these 603,000 men, have reached a stage where their preparation time is supposed to be over. Time to be, time to be soldiers. Time to move forward. Um, for those of you who are new to our group, and I'm looking at all three of you right now, um, that means that, first off, make sure that we are on. We are on. Okay. Um, that means that you can chime in at any time. Um, and for those of you who are already here, um, I expect you all to say something at some point sometime soon. There's only so much to say. Um, yeah, no, so Bummy Bar. Uh, the chapter, the parasha, especially if you've been reading the last few chapters in Leviticus, it, this one is kind of long compared to the you know, leap year. Um, and it's a lot of numbers and repetition. And it can kind of seem a little boring. Um, but the thing that's important to know is that, as Rav Shaul points out, that all scripture is given to teach and to grow. 
And uh, sometimes I find that God likes to hide like the coolest stuff in the really weird and kind of boring passages. Because I think he's kind of almost like daring you. Like, okay, if you really care, you'll study. And I've got some cool gems if you could spend some time on it. Otherwise, yeah, it's just going to be boring. And I think that um, this particular parasha, one of the things that stood out to me this year, was God likes to do things that don't make sense to us. And I think that we sometimes have a tendency to want God to be logical and to line up with our way of thinking. And sometimes he tells us to do something that makes sense later. And sometimes he tells us to do things that don't make sense ever. And one of the things that I thought stood up this year for me is in chapter 1, God numbers all of these different tribes. And at first, he starts out in the correct order. He begins with Reuben. But then it gets really weird, and he starts counting all these other tribes, like, completely out of birth order. It's very confusing. You start to really lose track. Where are we in the charts and everything? And, um, and, it, it, it's like, and it makes much more sense when you get to the next chapter, and God says, okay, this group of people will live with this people, and these people will stay here. But what's it, what I thought was really cool, and I think stood out to me, is that they're numbering through all these people, it says at the end of chapter 2, verse 54, or chapter 1, rather, 54, the children of Israel did everything that Adonai commanded Moses, so did they do. In other words, they didn't, they didn't care. Like, God had, it's not until chapter 2 that this starts to make sense in terms of the birth order and why we're counting them up and all that stuff. But in chapter 1, they didn't matter. They, people in Reuben get called up first. All right, Reuben's up first. There we go. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, which tribe is that? Why are they calling up? I was supposed to be next. No, they were okay with that because it's like yeah, that's what God wants to do. That's fine. Um, and I think it's important that sometimes we have that we express that same attitude. I mean, I think that we first started keeping different things in Jewish scriptures. Uh, I think it was like the Hebrew scriptures. You think about um, you know eating, not eating pork, and it's like I remember that first breakthrough moment when you're like you kind of reading for a while and you're like trichinosis. This is why we don't eat pork so we don't get sick and die some really scary disease. Um, no, that's not why. That's just one of the benefits of not eating pork. But it's important to keep in mind that sometimes we try so hard to explain it that we lose the sense of, of the holiness of it. It's like it's not just God giving us good tips that make your life better. It's about, it's about a spiritual reality, too, some of which doesn't make sense to us. And that's okay. You know, that's part of the idea. That's part of the faith and the trust. Yes, sir? Along those same lines, one could kind of take it like a bit, uh, a bit impersonal. It's just like assign everyone a number almost, where it's just like, oh, okay, let's just count these people. But you know, based on the way that it says, the kind of like lifting up their heads as they would count, uh, the, some of the commentary was mentioning that like basically the na- the word can be interchangeable as like the the word for like um, counting could kind of also be like remembering. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. uh, Ramban points out like this was actually a ver- an act of love. He was basically like numbering his most prized possessions. He loved keeping track of who they were. And that kind of reminded me of Matthew 10, where Yeshua says that the Father has each of the hairs of our head right. numbered. That's true. And That's he is saying that in context of saying how much the Father loves us. Right, absolutely. Yes, sir. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe believes that he's got this down. He understands why we have these tribes listed three times in three different orders. Okay. And it sounds legit. Okay. The first one he says is by birth order, with Leah's kids coming first, then Rachel's, because those are the. the That's what we normally do it. And then the handmaidens of each. So I get that. That works. The second one he says is for military prowess. It is actually pretty 
Gad is stuck in there third because he was, we see in Genesis 49, blessed by Jacob for having troops and being a military kind of guy. Okay. Uh, Shimon with Levi <laughs> did a work on Shechem. And, uh, evidently Fighting was not their problem. That's right, yeah. So they've, they've got that. So And he puts them in that order for... for uh, Work in, the, work in the military angle. The third one, he says, is actually broken down by the threes of tribes as they were laid out. Mm-hmm. And that, I never saw until this year. Yeah, it's interesting the way that that... So it's like, here's the triplet that's above the camp, right. here's the triplet on the right of the camp, here's the triplet below the camp, and here's the triplet to the north of the camp. And that one, now, for the first time, makes a whole lot more sense than ever before. Because I thought they were completely wacko. It does look kind of random yeah. uh, looking at it. And thinking about um, the numbering specifically, uh, one of the things I noticed this year in the commentary that's kind of cool is they're talking about this idea of the, the lifting up. It kind of parallels the language from Joseph's dream. You remember, you remember in Joseph's dream, this is sort of like, um, uh, there's a point of a little bit of humor in kind of a really morbid way when like the, Joseph tells the story and he's like, and you at the end of within three days, the barrel will lift your head and give you the cup, and you'll be back to being the steward. Everything's going to be great. The baker goes, awesome. I bet this is going to happen to me, too. Here's my story. In my dream, I had all this stuff happen. These birds ate the bread on, my, the, uh, on top of my head and all this jazz. And Joseph goes, and in three days, your head's going to be lifted up. And you kind of see in the movie, you know, the baker's big grin and, and lifted off of you. Oh, 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 that's not okay. You know, and, um, and the portion... What's interesting, in the commentary in this one, they say the language is similar, and the idea is also supposed to be somewhat similar, in that God is keeping count of all of them, and those who were noble and good and whatever else were going to get blessed, and those who were not, that counting sometimes is a scary thing. You know, God God knows, as you pointed out, God keeps track of all the hairs in our head. He also watches every single thing that we do. Behold, and your sins will be remembered. Yeah, he's not, he's not missing these things. Yeah. He, might, he might choose to forgive them or atone for them, but he's not going to ignore them. And uh, he's keeping close track uh, of each one of these. Another cool part about this um, is uh, the, the word here is uh, literally heads, um, or, or skulls, actually, would be the better translation. You'll notice if you look in the Hebrew, listen to um, the, the first of Zion, in the Hebrew, it's talk, it sounds very much like another famous place about a skull, which is Golgotha. It's the same word um, in, in uh, this this skull imagery, and I have to say that's very individualized. <laughs> I mean, you know, you only have one, and each one is very different. And it's kind of like God. Uh, one of the things the Hasidic masters point out is that when God's counting them one by one by one, the numbers is both. It's it's, it's a combination of two very interesting concepts. They're almost opposite, and yet they unite. One is that each individual is important. Each individual has a very special value to the person counting them. On the other hand, each individual is just a number. It's the ultimate equalizer. They're all the same. Nobody is any more special or different than anybody else, in a sense. So it is both this combination that each one is uniquely important to God, and at the same time, they're all important to God at the same level. It doesn't really matter who they come from and whatnot. So you get that that balancing out of that. And we see that previously in some of the way that the shekels were handled for the tabernacle and whatnot, get this imagery. And so I think it's, it's, it's very much intentional by God that God tells us that each of us is both uniquely special to him, like the counting of the hairs in your head, and at the same time, it doesn't make us like you know inherently individually superior. We're not, we are not special in a sense. We are special to God. 
And that is something to be both humbling and also to feel loved at the same time. Yes, sir. Question. Uh, so the, the end of chapter one has the final count, which is identical to the last time there was the census. Mm. And there's like basically three different, at least three prevailing opinions about why that is. Rashi's is sort of interesting because he says the reason that happened was because they only counted, they didn't count it by who turned the age on their birthdays, but like what age they were after Rosh Hashanah the prior year. Okay. So which means that it kind of all figured itself out. And then there's this other guy, Mizrahi, that says, no, 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 this is one of the miracles that Hashem did with them in the wilderness, that it was literally the exact number. Some died, some were born, and then Ramban basically <coughs> says, now nah, it was a total coincidence. There were plenty of people that died, there was plenty of people that were born, and it's just a total coincidence that the number ended up being identical. I don't know. Well, so yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts. What well, you I think, think it's interesting because you have to keep in mind that this is the, the, the living, the dying, and the, and the being born actually is not as clean as it sounds because this is 20 years and up. So this is like, talk about planning in advance. I mean, the the odds of that happening is, I mean, I think that's probably what happened, but it is really cool because you're thinking about the, the concept that then the number of people born would be 20 years ago when they were born. Like, God is, I mean, God obviously is, in a, I mean, he's, from what we understand, is outside of time, so it's not really a big jump for him. It's not like he's having to plan ahead, but it almost feels that way. Like, wow, what a very specific pinpoint um, way of handling this, and that the numbers end up being the same. I think it's interesting and even more fascinating that over the course of the, the wilderness journey, if the end of numbers, the numbers are still almost exactly the same. A lot of people die, and we assume a good number of people are born, and yet, at the end, it's like a 2,000 person difference. Like, they're almost identical, which is really crazy. And I think it just kind of gets back to that whole idea in Esther, where God's kind of like, or Mordecai tells Esther, you know, don't think that because, you know, you don't intervene, that, you know, what is it? God will raise up help from somebody else. Like, he doesn't need you. <laughs> you get the privilege of working with him. Yes, sir. That reminds me of John 17, where Yeshua's praying, and he says, not and we talked about the fact that not one of them was lost. And uh, the exception, obviously, his, his point was that he had preserved those that he was given. And in the same way, even though we know that there are people that died and there were people that were born in time, in reality, we see the same number. So it's as if the same people that came out of Egypt are going to go into the, eventually go into the land. Right. I think again it gets back to that idea that God's um, God's got a plan, and you play a role in that plan. Uh, how uh, relevant a role you play is up to you. Um, you may just be a you know little blip in the midst of the plan, <laughs> but it's kind of uh, it's kind of a, it's like I said. I think it goes back to this whole thing. I remember when I was a little kid, and everyone makes this big deal when you're really small. Um, you know, probably have a little, little tag. Well, Jeremiah, my little my younger brother, not the youngest got a little tag from his preschool. You're special, you know? Of course, the, and that's true. It's true. At the same time, they gave the same tag to every other child in that Sunday school class, which means that none of them are special, because they all have the tag. And I think the funny thing is, I think it's from a human And it's like, I think that's the, the problem is that I think the human perspective is all you end up with. You end up with a, con a self-contradiction, because it doesn't make sense to us. But uh, I think to some degree, to parents, it probably makes sense. I think you can look at your kids, and each one is special, and at the same time, they're all the same. And I think that to God, he sees us the same way. We are all special, 
Uh, at the same time, we are all equals before him, and we all uh, depend upon him. So there's that, there's that balance there. Don't be so full of yourself. Um, but I think <laughs> as we move into chapter 2, you mentioned the, the military arrangement. This is really cool, because if you start thinking about it, um, and thinking about God is strategic here, which is kind of interesting, because God doesn't really, God likes to pick his spots on being strategic. Uh, with Gideon, God, God basically tells Gideon, look, you have way too good a chance of winning this war. You need to get rid of a whole bunch of people. And that's obviously not strategic. He's going for the miracle effect. But one of the things that Judaism teaches us is that God usually only does miracles uh, for special occasions. Now, in reality, everything is a miracle because everything is being done by God's will. But God chooses to do what we call open miracles or obvious miracles only on special occasions. He doesn't want us to get too used to it in the sense that it becomes no longer a miracle. Or more importantly, also, I think that we become... Um, we don't learn to live life. You know, you get dependent on God doing like magic, basically. It's that, that's not the way we're supposed to live. Life is supposed to be a consistent journey with God, and occasionally God intervenes in a miraculous way. And what we see here is that God prepares the people of Israel to take care of themselves, in a sense, even though he's promising to protect them. Obviously, we see in the, in the various uh, uh, experiences of combat here, God does miracles with them, and yet he outlines the camp in a very practical way. And as you pointed out, at the front of the camp, he's putting Judah, who's the largest individual tribe. Not only are they the leaders, but they're also big. They're a large group. Um, and then, in, 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 like, right next to them, he's got, um, as you pointed out, he's also throwing in there yes, some other big groups. This, this opening salvo of people is huge. Very large group. Almost, almost a third of the entire community is in that first camp. And if there's four sections, that tells you that it's disproportionate. So then he, as you go around the rim, you find that the second group and the third group are both the two smallest groups, which in the campground layout is less important, but in the marching is very important because you want your, your, your largest group and your second largest group to be the front and the end in a military procession because the front group is going to be the first ones to meet the enemy. And the back group is the rear guard. They're protecting against, well, as we, yeah. <laughs> as we read, those Amalek guys, they like to pick on the guys in the back. So in the middle, right by the, the tent of meeting, you've got the two smaller camps. Uh, but, but God also is interesting. He doesn't just outline it biggest, biggest, you know. It's like he kind of he kind of evens it out to some degree. Like the, there's certain groups that are bigger and smaller and whatnot. Uh, it kind of tells you, I think, that there's also some variance in terms of how qualified the different groups are. Maybe one group's larger in number, but maybe one group is a bit better at what they do. Um, but then when they lay in the camp, one of the things they point out is that Dan is a very large group. And it's interesting that Dan gets put to the north. Now, Judaism t teaches this idea that the north is where the enemies of Israel come from. You see that throughout the prophets, it's always those, the enemy is always from the north. And the reason is actually geographic. Because in, in the land of Israel, you've got the Jordan River and the Reds in the Dead Sea on this side, the Mediterranean on this side. You've got desert to the south. If you're talking about invading the land of Israel, the, probably one of the most logical locations is the north. It's very helpful. And if you're talking about invading Jerusalem specifically, which is what a lot of the prophecies deal with, it's only the north. There's valley everywhere, and the only real logical place to come from that's not going uphill to the same extreme level is from the north. So Dan is camped in the north. So it's, it's, it's a symbolic there. He's going to end up living in the north, eventually. He's protecting Israel from the north. But more importantly, think about the layout in the Sinai. 
remember, God's laying them out by direction. He's not laying them out by uh, direction in, in, in proportion to the tent of meeting. So Dan is always in the north, as in like going up. Well, where are they in the, in the middle of the desert? Where are the bad guys? They're in the north. They're up here. The bad guys that were in the south, they, got, they all die in the Red Sea. They're way gone. They're southwest, they're, they're dead. They're gone. It's over. So where does he have the, the smallest camps? In the south and the west. That direction. Because Egypt's not coming after them anymore. Where does he have the biggest camps? In the north and in the east. Because that's where the enemies are. All of the bad guys, you got Edom and Moab and all the Canaanites and the, and the, uh, the, the guys in the coastline, they're kind of scared of. Is it the Amalekites? No, not that. Philistines? Yeah. Uh, Philistines are there and, and the, uh, and the uh, Ammonites and all that group. All these, all these ites, they're all up here. So God arranges, if you think about it, here is his primary uh, fighting teams right here. And here are the bad guys. Really makes a lot of sense. God's yeah, it's kind of cool. God's a genius. Exactly. I was going to say that. Um, so that's, I think you think about it, 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 I think it's good, because sometimes that, I think in life, you can sometimes feel like you're not supposed to plan. You're not supposed to be prepared, because everything's supposed to be dependent on God. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes God calls you to do something that doesn't make sense to the people around you, and he wants to do a miracle. Sometimes you're giddy. Other times, God wants you to spend your money the right way. And God wants you to get a job, a real job, and earn money to take care of your family, and so on and so forth. There's, there's a lot of life, most of life, is doing what makes sense in a good, stewardly kind of way. Not being arrogant about it, trusting God, but doing life the way that is a, a healthy, normal way of doing it. And then when God wants to do a miracle, then it really looks like one, and not just like you got lucky. Yes, sir? Well, you know, being one of the guys in the room... Carrying a firearm. Um, <laughs> As we have an extra guy in the room carrying a firearm. Exactly right, yes. Um, I love the way you laid out how God did a, a fabulous military layout. I mean, it really is extraordinary. Um, but even the text teaches us this because we see from the very beginning that these guys are prepared for war. The count was designed about men for war. So, lest we miss the obvious, they're armed, right? <laughs> and uh, you haven't gotten to the to the priests yet, or the the Levites. Um, I'm interested in in anyone's take on on how that's laid out. Um, you you brought out rightly that he lays out the east side. Then this, you know, the south, then the west, and then the north, to to tell us where the trios of tribes were. Mm -hmm. So he starts at the opening of the tent of meeting mm -hmm. and goes clockwise. Mm -hmm. Kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. When he describes where the Levites are, he starts at the south and then goes to the east and then the west and then the north. So he's zigzagging all around, and there doesn't seem to be any reason for that. I haven't found mm -hmm. one. Um, but I, I do want to point out that not only is everyone armed and ready for battle, but that's specifically the primary focus of the Levites in this passage. In uh, verse 51, when the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider, Zur, comes near, he shall be put to death. 
Well, they're not going to do that with some kind of, you know, hocus pocus whammy potion. They're going to kill him. Later on, same thing, verse 53, the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel, and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. They were good at that. Yeah. If you remember the old calf situation, yeah. they, they, they were pretty good at having no mercy. When they were told to let go, they did. Uh, kind of like ten. the Hulk, you know, it's like you have to learn how to use that power. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 10, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So, um, again in 338, same, same deal. Do you think that God cares about who's allowed into where in the tabernacle? Wow. So, as they're traveling, there's a protection of the, of the, the children themselves, the children of Israel themselves. And then, as they're camped, mm -hmm. the, the Levites are protecting from any outsider right. their priesthood, and the holy place. Well, and to that point, God actually does the same thing later on at the end of the parsha. He talks about how they're going to lay out all the, the putting together the holy objects into right. all the different various and sundry uh, tarps and whatnot. Don't let go half die. And he makes a point saying, look, you guys, you're responsible for your brothers here. You have to protect them from themselves, in a sense. Don't let them wander in here and start watching you put it all together because that's the whole reason why we're covering up in the first place. They walk in here and they see you do, doing this thing, so they're going to die. Oh. So it's interesting to think about uh, uh, the very infamous uh, Cain and my brother's keeper. And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. In this case, that's exactly what God said. He specifically goes, he doesn't call out Kohath. He doesn't tell the Kohathites, by the way, this is a heads up, don't get inside and look because you'll die. If you go in there, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Instead, he tells the other guys, hey, look, you have a responsibility. He tells the, uh, the, the sons of Aaron. You have a responsibility to take care of the holy things so that they don't die. He does the same thing, effectively, with the tabernacle. You Levites, your responsibility is to protect the tabernacle against the rest of your family because they'll die if they go in there at the wrong time. And I think about that idea of protecting, uh, kind of protecting your brothers sometimes from themselves, if necessary. Um, there is a certain responsibility to that at, at some level, and, and learning when and where that looks like. And you know, think about um, Paul kind of does that thing with the whole the whole kosher meat and whatnot question. And people in the diaspora were thinking, okay, well, so much stuff gets offered to idols, and who knows how it's being slaughtered and all of those stuff. That's it. I'm only eating vegetables. Only vegetables. And Paul says, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, yeah, you can do that. Um, he kind of dings them a little tiny bit in some other places. But the point that he's trying to get at, though, is that it's all about unity. It's about bringing the people together. And it's like, you guys who do like to eat meat, don't go tempting your brother to go join you. He thinks it's wrong. And if he does it too, he's effectively sinning because he believes what he's doing is wrong. But it's like, you need to respect him enough, and Paul goes on to say, I, I respect them enough that I'll go without the meat. It's not that big of a deal. It's like, if it's important to protect them from themselves in some level, then I'll, I'll take that step. Yes, sir? We see it naturally in, in, in our own Western society. We place a a premium upon those who know or those who are in leadership. They, they bear responsibility mm -hmm. far more than people who do not know. Mm -hmm. An example is that you know, in the law, basically, people who are, who are ignorant are not nearly as culpable as those who are not ignorant. Even though, even though we apply the standard, we say someone who knows better actually has bears a greater responsibility. Mitigating certainly. That's right. We have we have those, and, and we but we see it also in our in our own uh, spiritual lives too. We we have this tendency as 
as people who, who think of ourselves as closer to God, to think and to speak with disdain upon those who are far away from him. Mm. Un- misunderstanding that the relationship brings greater responsibility. Mm. Uh, Paul says those who are teachers bear greater responsibility than those who are being taught. In the same way, the pagan, those who have no concept of God, have less responsibility before God to be obedient than we who know what he says and, and sometimes do not do it. So our disdain and our an example is you look at you know Hollywood or culture around us and you think, what a bunch of ignorance that they don't understand how precious and how holy uh, life is and that God has called us to live our lives. And in fact, the opposite is true. We ought to know better. They don't. Right. And then, and then, yeah, to your point, being I mean, the leaders have responsibility. I think it's interesting to talk about leaders. Um, the tradition holds that uh, the guy at the front of the camp, very first dude, um, this is not the first time he stepped in front of anybody. Nakshon, uh, son of Minidal, he, um, according to tradition, he is the guy who walks into the Red Sea before everybody else, right? So I think it's really kind of a cool idea that the first guy that takes the plunge, literally, into uh, in, in faith with God is the one that God takes to lead the whole camp. Like, okay, so you've obviously proven yourself to be a leader. Now you get the opportunity to be one. And but to your point, though, that there's, there's a great responsibility that comes with that. And that kind of goes back to what you're saying at the beginning, the preparation. You know, you, it takes that you have to put in the work to be worthy of the role. And I think that that's something that, especially people in my generation, that's been a struggle for us because um, I think when we come out of college and whatnot, we're promised all this opportunity and we want to make money and we want to be well and it's like, we can start a job and it's like, I've been in this job for 18 months. I should be, at least be a manager by now. You know, it's just an expectation because we've been told our lives, we're amazing. And, you know, we kind of get how to use emojis better than people older than us. So obviously we know more. And the point is that, like, there's this, I think that, there, that, that's, that there's a danger there because you can't give people leadership too soon. And at the same time, those who want to be leaders need to be working for it. That means that you have to plant before, I mean, before you reap. That means you have to put in effort when there's no promise that you're going to receive something. But not showing stepping out in the Red Sea. He's not doing it thinking, you know, one of these days, I'm going to be at the front of the whole community. That's not why he did it. He did it because it was the right thing to do. And that is why God picks him to be in the front of the whole community. I got you and then you. Or even to be, to be the sacrificial one. You know, because that's like the, one of the greatest marks of leadership mm-hmm. is one that's willing to sacrifice themselves for on behalf of those that he's leading, and which is usually such a paradox within leadership because it's usually not the guy that's like, I want to be a leader, I want to be a leader, that's cut out to be a leader. Sure. It's the guy that almost doesn't want to be a leader. That's what they say about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They knew he was the one because everyone, he kept saying, no, 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 I, there's, if there's one thing I don't want to do, it's be the Rebbe, right? And so they're like, well, that means you're perfect. <laughs> you know, Moshe, the same way. He, so how many times did he try to get out of it? And, but yet, he was one of the greatest leaders Israel's ever seen. Right? First qualification for president is you don't want to be president. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Only that was true. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting <laughs> thing. But back to our, what we were talking about before, I, just was, I, I love uh, bringing this up when we have the opportunity, but it's just great within the community to see how many people do exactly what you were talking about, where it's like, if somebody has a little bit higher of a standard of Halakha or whatever, like, you, first of all, that person doesn't usually look disparagingly down on the people that don't, but then the other way, like, so many people really step up and try to be understanding of that. 
And I just think that's, that make, it makes such a, a wonderful and loving atmosphere within our community that everyone is that way. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's like putting down anyone else, but then at the same time, no one's like deliberately doing something in front of someone that thinks it's wrong. And it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, and at least always trying to be accommodating. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think that's something that's important um, to try to get that. Again, it comes back to unity as a big part of that. It's not just about um, keep protecting your brother. It's also about trying to maintain something united front. Uh, and and uh, one of the things that Yeshua got most upset with the Pharisees over was not so much their standards. It was more in the way that they enforced their standards in a sometimes berating way on those who did not know or who were not you know that developed yet in their faith or whatever it was or not that strict whatever the reason. The point is that Yeshua, when he critiques the Pharisees for a lot of their a lot of their strictness. It's very rare that he attacks the standard itself. It doesn't. It's almost like he doesn't really. He's not really commenting on whether or not they're right. He's commenting on on the fact that he's like, wait, don't. Because it's almost like he comes to the defense of people. You know, don't go picking on my disciples because they're you know rubbing the grain in their hands on Shabbat. You know, we'll worry about that another time. Let them. They gotta learn. They gotta learn at their own pace. And and so he kind of his response to them almost seems to be more about their act, their response to the people rather than necessarily their standard. And I think that kind of comes back to some of what um, Paul is getting at, this idea of, um, you know, it, it's important to have standards, but it's also important to be loving. And if you lose sight of that, then in the end, your standards become kind of useless because you're missing the point. Yes, sir. Uh, just bring it full circle. It's easy to look at the pagan and it's like, well, we shouldn't. But those that are closest to us, uh, for instance, those that are found in traditional Christianity, Messianics tend to be more harsh and more judgmental with them than obviously have been warranted. And in reality, and this is this, uh, Tim Hague wrote an article uh, the last few weeks talking about this very thing. In reality, they are, they, they have taken the, as a group, historically taken the weightier matters of the Torah, justice, righteousness, uh, kindness, and have elevated them to, to the heights that they deserve. And Unfortunately, those who, of us who are messianic look at the minutia correctly and say God expects us to keep every word that He has declared. They don't do that, and our harshness towards them it bears fruit in ourselves. It brings forth a, a root of bitterness in us. We tend to not only be disparaging of them because we, in most of us, came out of them, uh, but we actually then transmit that to others as well. And instead of being the gracious and loving people that we should be, because we have received this knowledge and understanding, we end up being uh, pointing fingers and, and disparaging to our own uh, you know, detriment. We, we hurt ourselves in that. True. Very true. Yes, sir. Well, and, uh, and I, to that point, like, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but that, I felt like that happened recently where I had, I had heard from the back end like what a particular church did that like just blessed the socks off of like so many different nonprofits and stuff like that. And it's the one church that gets the most flack from the rest of Christianity, which is Elevation. Huh. Elevation, of course, there a lot of people look down on them because they're just very much like into rock music and you know, very commercial almost looks a little worldly, yeah, very commercialized. But man, I have personally heard several accounts from various organizations locally that said no church has ever, ever in their history blessed them as much as Elevation has. Whether it be donations, whether it be time, volunteers, like, and I just, it, it convicted me to your point to be like, oh, yeah, I've always thought of them as like, kind of like the bottom run because they were just so like 
out there and you know it looks very much like the world but then it was like whoa wow you don't even hear about that kind of stuff so it's, that's a good point good yeah and I think that yeah you're right it goes because I think if you read in the scriptures we just read a few parshiot ago that we're not supposed to allow sin on our brother like we have a responsibility to protect our brothers from themselves in the sense that we are supposed to encourage them do the right thing and sometimes that means rebuking them if necessary at the same time Judaism and uh, Yeshua also emphasizes this. The way you do that is extremely important. And if you do it the wrong way, the end result will be that the person will actually not only not hear the message, there's a good chance they will they will not hear anything else you have to say. And um, and it's important then to somehow find that balance. That doesn't mean that if it goes badly that you're necessarily to blame. Sometimes it goes badly and that's their fault. Sometimes, though, I think that the lesson that we have to learn in, in looking at this um, just think about, you know, Yeshua makes this comment about casting pearls before swine. He also talks about the importance of you know, going to your brother privately and bringing in other people. You know, there's a, there's a protocol, there's a method to this. And I think about that with the Levites. You know, the Levites were there to protect the people of Israel, but that's really supposed to be a last, uh, against themselves, it's supposed to be a last resort. It's not supposed to be the first thing. Um, you know, that's why God has the... Um, he had, I think maybe that uh, that could be one reason why the Kohathites aren't, aren't lined up on the east side. I mean, they're not they're not right at the doorway. They're gonna they gotta be climbing up and over the walls in order to get into the tabernacle where they're putting everything, covering everything up. It's like step one, bring the, the priesthood in, let them you know set everything up. Step two, bring the guys from all the way around here and in to come carry it out. And so it's like sometimes it's it's not just a matter of rebuking, but also a matter of protection. You know, you it's. It's also a matter of trying to think ahead, trying to prepare, um, and on the, and then when you have a situation to speak out, do it the right way, and 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 handle it with the right attitude. I think there's a difference between protection you're talking about and just donating and just being loving and donating. We're not the United Way. The sure. United Way does way better than most of us do by far on an organization right. level. So it's not just about giving or just helping and donating and loving. It's more of the protection aspect. You know, you know the example you're bringing about the priest protecting. Mm-hmm. Right. It's more about what are you protecting them from is the focus. Well, you know, right. 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 And more than it's about just looking for out people's interests as far as giving and doing True. That's true. It's true. It's people way outdo us that aren't professing right. It's, it's, it, there's definitely a purpose and a reason behind it. And I think that also, I mean, think about like with, with kids, and this is a good example, it's like I think the first the first step, like the multiple stages of protecting someone, first step is you have to give a good example. I mean, I remember, I remember, I went to multiple types of like evangelical Christian uh, evangelism training and whatnot as a kid growing up, and I have never, ever prayed with somebody that I met randomly to accept Yeshua or Jesus as their as their Messiah. That never happened. Not to say that those, those programs don't work. There's, I'm sure there's lots of people with very good experiences. Mine was not that way. The irony is, as soon as I started wearing a kippah, all of a sudden I had people coming out of the woodwork that wanted to talk to me about my faith. I mean, I there there are people who don't look Jewish at all, whose last names are Greek. I had this one guy come up to me, and he's like, he just wanted to talk, and there was this long conversation, and you know, anyway, it's just. But the point is that like that's, I think that that it starts with what you do. I'm not saying that this kippah is necessarily a moral thing. It's really I see it more as an identification marker than a, than a mitzvah per se. But the important thing is that it's it's about living that example first. That's what God says in Deuteronomy. You live. They'll ask questions. Now, once you've been living as the right example, that's when you have more of a right to say, hey, that didn't look right. I don't think you can do it that way. You need to have a little talk. 
you know, whatever that might look like. So that's when you earn that, right? And that's kind of what Yeshua says. He says, take this peck out of your own eye first. So thinking about like these layers of protection, there are, you have a responsibility first. And that, I think, is part of why God points his finger at the strong ones. He looks at the, he looks at the priesthood. He looks at the Levites and says, you protect them. It's not their responsibility to figure out what they're doing wrong or to not do something wrong. You know better. You protect them and let them uh, be the beneficiaries of that. And if necessary, be the bread end of your sword. But and by the way, don't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> Try to hold yourself back just a little bit. Um, Unination. That's right. But it's, uh, so one of the things we mentioned earlier about math that doesn't work so well, God counts up all of the Levites. Uh, he adds them up. Excuse me. And then he also counts all of the firstborn of Israel. And it so happens that the numbers don't, don't work, actually. If you add up all the Levites, they don't really add up exactly to the numbers that they're supposed to, which is really confusing, because the whole point of the 273 left over is that they don't get, like, they, they don't get a pass, so to speak, on giving this, this uh, offering for being firstborn. And it's interesting because I think one of the things that we, we have a bad habit of doing, I have a bad habit of doing, I don't know about you guys, you're probably all a lot more noble than I am. Definitely. But uh, yeah, right, see, I knew it. Um, but the point is that like, one of the things I think that we, we, I have a bad habit of doing is um, it's feeling like sometimes when God gives me a commandment to do, especially you read the Torah, you learn something new, it's like, ah, yeah, I haven't been doing that. I gotta do that too, you know? And there's this tendency to see the commandments of God as a burden. Not necessarily as a bad thing, but simply as an extra task that we have to put on our list, that we have to be careful about, whatever. And it's like, oh, you know, I really, I really like life, which I don't think about anything. But you know, sometimes you feel like we have to, um, we have more things to, to do, and that's, that sometimes feels like a negative thing. So you read this passage, and he's like, oh, this is 273, you have to give an extra five shekels. And you look at it, and, you, and I think our gut reaction as people is, that's not fair. Like, why do they have to do that? And more importantly, what a bummer. Like, everybody else gets a free pass, and these guys have to give, you know. And, and in fact, and in fact, I think it's interesting, the commentary here in the, in the homage points out that this, they, uh, the each, the five shekels is 20 geras or whatever, it adds up to the same amount that was given for Joseph, when Joseph was sold as a slave. So essentially, this is like, these 273 people were like the ones who made an atonement for the entire people of Israel over the selling of Joseph. Now, instead of that feeling like a burden, like, oh, man, poor you, got paid five shekels, everybody else got a free pass, they're like the cool ones, you know? It's like, oh, man, I wish I had to do that mitzvah. And I think that's, that's the, the desire that should be there, you know? Like, for those, of, um, for those in this room who have not yet had a, a, a first child, you're reading through some of this stuff and thinking to yourself, wouldn't it be great to have a firstborn son? I really want the opportunity to do that mitzvah about the, you know, the shekels and all the cool stuff. I don't even know how I would do that now, but just the opportunity to do that would be so great. You know, like one of the things that, um, that, that I think I, you know, I'm sure you guys kind of went through is like excitement about having a son for a lot of reasons. One of many of them would be getting a chance to do a circumcision. Like this is great. We're excited about doing this mitzvah. And it was a lot more painful for Aaron than it was for you. But financially, it hurt you a whole lot more than it hurt him. So the point is that, like, yeah. But the point is that, like, you look forward to doing the mitzvot. Instead of looking at it like it's a burden, like, oh, man, i got to add this one on there. It's like, this is exciting. Wait, wait, you've got a fast day coming up? Oh, I can't wait for the fast day coming up. This is going to be so much fun. I mean, the idea is that, like, to be excited about doing the mitzvot, to be, to be looking forward to doing them, and to not see them as a negative, because if you flip it around, these 273 are actually privileged. 
Now, at the same time, the other ones were not unprivileged, I don't think, to some degree. I think that, you know, we all have a role to play. God gives us an assignment that we have to do. At the end of the day, it's all about him. It doesn't matter what we do. It's about serving him. But I think that we each need to make sure we take that service to God and count it as a blessing and not look at it like a burden. Not look at it, you know. Some of you have three children under the age of five. And that means that you have a different life goal and, and structure and system, and you have a blessing in that. Some of us don't have kids yet that want kids. That means we have a different goal and structure and system and things that we have to do. And, you know, I think that that's, that's the thing is God's got us all in different places, and we need to embrace the roles that God's given us and also the mixed folk. Yes, sir. One of, the, one of the cool things that I feel like I always get a chance to learn from the Chabad community is the infusion of simcha into the commandments. It's the infusion yeah. of joy. And I, it didn't really hit me before. You know, you, you almost just kind of say, like, oh, yeah, of course, you want to be joyful and everything. But it didn't hit me until recently when I was reading something where it was like, I don't know, the whole purpose of that is because that's their way of preparing for Mashiach. Because hmm. when we keep the commandments when Mashiach is here, they will only be joyful. You won't even have a choice. Everything's <laughs> going to be joyful. Yeah. And so it's like that's their that's way right. of almost hastening back Mashiach is making sure that when they keep a mitzvah, it's super joyous. And it was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. That's actually a really cool way to think about trying to be joyful about the commandments. Well, same with your children. I mean, who wants a child that does what you say to do because they have to do it versus they're happy about it, right? Right. Yeah. It's not a new concept. It's yeah. It's, it's almost built into you to know that that's what you desire. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And at the end of the day, you'd rather have them do it than not do it. Mm-hmm. But the ideal, they would do it with the right attitude. Right. 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 Exactly. Yes, sir. So a little bit of philosophy. Uh oh. The math doesn't add up. So, from a worldly perspective, and what the world presents us with is actually a challenge. I went to uh, a Baptist college, and the first year freshmen are all required to take a course called Harmony in the Gospels. <laughs> a wonderful book written by a great theologian who seems to be the only point of which is to point out the disparity in the accounts. Um, so what's the point of this? Harmony well, being a misnomer. That's like the misnomer of university. Instead of bringing <laughs> unity and a, a, uh, a creation of a single perspective, as, as was seen in the quad in, in Oxford, this is back to university is the diversity and showing you how nothing matters. And by the way, everything your parents taught you was evil and wrong. <laughs> we're going to deconstruct it, and then we're going to reconstruct you as a good citizen of the world. Um, so I, I was wrong well, assuming that at Baptist college that that would be the purpose. And the purpose of the course was clearly not to enforce my faith. So, but I took a different perspective. Because when I read it, I go, well, this is obvious proof that the Gospels are absolutely true. Because any idiot that was putting it all together would make sure it adds up. <laughs> right. <laughs> because after the fact, you don't want people challenging you. Right. And there's so many disparities and apparent contradictions, it's obvious this is by design. <laughs> so in fact, multiple authors coming up with a different perspective enforce the view that this is inspired. In the same way, we find, by the way, anybody that picks on the Gospels has a real task in defending the Torah, yeah. which is obviously a, like anytime somebody says, "Well, I don't believe the New Testament anymore because nah, 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 nah," I was like, "Excuse me, <laughs> you believe the Torah, but you don't believe the New Testament. You have the bigger problems in the Torah." Uh, and the and the point here is God's con- what appears to be contradictions 
should be enforcing our faith. Because just from a purely logical and philosophical point of view, a human perspective, you'd make it add up. Right. So it's it's clearly not adding up for a reason. Right. And in this case, you have to tell us what's the reason. Well, I don't have to tell you. <laughs> but, um, you said yeah, like, it he's not really my son. <laughs> I don't have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was not a rhetorical question. Um, no, but the, uh, the no, the um, give me the answer. I know, right? Yes. Well, I, I think that part of the answer was to highlight it. I think that that's part of the idea. One of the things that I noticed in in studying some similar pair of things that don't add up. I mean, I remember remember as a young person, uh, I think about Torah actually. I mean, one of the things that doesn't add up was the recap of the Ten Commandments. You read the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and you read them again in Deuteronomy. Moses is repeating them, and, it's, and most of it is word for word. And every now and again, particularly on Shabbat, he goes way off top track on a totally different side of the of the myth of the mitzvah. He doesn't. Not only is it like a couple words off, or like, well, Moses, this is like forty years later, he probably forgot exactly how it was said or whatever. <laughs> but it's more like it's like Moses is like the normal mitzvah talks about this, and in, 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 in Shabbat, and he he wants to go over here with it. It's why are we doing that? And it, it, I think at the, at the surface level, it it almost feels like oh, that's wrong. But see, the thing is, I think the mistake that we keep making is that we, I don't know about being a math person, we come too much from Euclid. We want everything to be a nice, perfect little circle, and all the math is going to add up the way it's supposed to. But in, an e in a more Eastern way of looking at things, the fact that stuff doesn't add up is supposed to be kind of cool. Like, it's supposed to be like, this is the way that the universe really works. You know, you're looking at it from a perspective of what makes logical sense to you. Well, that's how life tends to work on a normal level, because that's just how you, what you observe. But the way that the world universe really works, like deep inside the mystical, Quantum physics, spiritual, not right, you start getting deep into the way the universe is structured, and you find that things don't add up. They don't work the way that they're supposed to work. And so I think about like Moses and how he's remembering the, the mitzvah of Shabbat, Okay, so maybe one, there's, there's lots of cool explanations. One would be like, you know, well, the, the one that we get in Exodus is part of what was said. The one we get in, in Deuteronomy is the other part of what was said. Kind of like you get the gospel disparities are lined up that way. But it doesn't really matter. I think that's one thing I love about Judaism. They embrace the mystery without having to explain it. Sometimes they give they give explanations, like we see with the 603,000. Like, why are they, why is it, but they disagree. And it's okay. They don't get to the end of it and go, you know, uh, 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 you know, the rabbis didn't listen to Mizrahi and go, that's it. I, I Started on a nomination. I, I, I'm going to have to, we're going we're gonna to cut that part out of the Torah. Obviously, it's not true. That must have been written by another person because. Is that you know, something JEPD? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it turns out the whole, that, that three out of the four writers were obviously female. I don't know how they knew that based on. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that, like, um, you know, but the point that I'm trying to get at is that we keep, we keep see, it's only us that wants to figure it out. God's, God's got his scripture here, and he's talking about something that's way bigger than that. And those nuances and those variances are not supposed to be distraction points. They're supposed to be glowing red lights saying, come check this out. This is cool. I want you to know something here. Spend some little more time studying. Try to get the answers. I don't have the answers yet. Maybe next year when we do this fourth portion, I will. But the point is that, like, um, the point is though that he wants us to highlight that, and I think that that's something that's really kind of beautiful and cool. So instead, if you had read that account, you might have missed the fact that there are two hundred seventy-three people that don't get added up, and just be like, oh yeah, <laughs> sneaks for them. The numbers did not line up. 
But because it's on purpose, it's, high, it's, uh, it's intentional. It's like, wait a minute, so this wasn't just random chance that these guys didn't get lined up. God intentionally carved out these 273. Why is that important? Why did, what's the what's the significance? Uh, uh, yeah, asking questions. What does this mean? What do you do with this? Why is it twenty geras? Why has never else have we seen that pass in, in scripture before? You know those types of things. So I think that that's that's the approach that Judaism has said. I love the idea that Rashi's always got a problem, and uh, and it's really kind of cool because it's like rather than looking at the scriptures, I remember we were, we were over at uh, uh, discussing for uh, Dove's circumcision. And we're digging into some of the stuff. And uh, was it was it not fun that we were reading? It was like he was like he he started his entire commentary is basically contradicting everything, and then he gets to the end and he's like, Oh, and here's how it all makes sense, and this is why it's all true. Yeah, yeah it was like that's the Rebbe's like um, studies in Rashi. Oh yeah, yeah. Where he takes like a bunch of different Rashi things that actually don't make sense either. Where like Rashi sort of contradicts himself and then yeah. yeah. So it's like you go through the whole thing and he's like, this doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense. And if, and if Rashi's saying this, then it definitely doesn't make sense. But if he means this, it makes even less sense than before. And then about 25 minutes and 14 pages later, you're like, it all makes sense. But that the, the idea being that like I think that's what God's asking us to do. He wants us to dig in. He wants us to spend the time. So he's gonna he you know, you read through and the count of so-and-so's tribe was number of this many thousand. And according to the heads of the tribes and all the, the exact same language 12 times in this parasha. If I were writing this parasha, I would have said, and the sons of Judah had it, and this is also true for Simeon and Levi. And, and I would have gone through all the tribes, summarized them all, this parasha would have been half the length. And it's, But what's cool about that is by doing it all, God emphasizes the equality of them. Even though Judah is first, that doesn't mean that he is more valuable than the other tribes. God gives them each their due. We see the same thing in a couple parshiot from now, when, or is the next one, I guess the end of the next one, where we have 80-something verses of this guy brings a gold plate, and 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 they go through the exact same description of their offering, one after the other. And, and an English mind that's used to watching 30-minute TV shows that are actually 23 minutes because of the commercials, we can't handle that much repetition. But God's end point is to say, I count them all. They were all beautiful to me. Each gift was special. Rather than, well, the first guys were special because he was first, and the rest of them, you know, they, they tried. You know, for those of you who are not firstborn, you appreciate each one being counted as special. Firstborn, we think that we are the end of the universe. We started it, we ended it. But we didn't. So. <laughs> I'm not first born either. Um, <laughs> I have a bias against first born. So I don't why. Sorry. <laughs> um, getting towards the end here, and get towards the towards the wrapping up. One of the things that stands out is God's counting the uh, the, the children. He uh, he noticed the, the sages point out this is kind of funny because God says the children are Moses and Aaron, and then he lists only Aaron's kids. He doesn't list Moses' kids. The sages note this teaches us, kind of like Paul does with Timothy, that a teacher essentially acts as a father to the person he's teaching. It's really cool when your father is your teacher. That makes it a lot easier. Um, but then also, I think it's kind of neat, is that in the midst of that, he lists Nadab and Abihu. He calls them out by name. And um, if you think about it, this is not the first time this happened. Back in, in Genesis, we had the same thing with the genealogy of Judah. God lists, he's counting only the people going into Egypt, but he lists on purpose the two sons of Judah that die before he moves on. And I think that's really, I think that speaks volumes. When God says in Ezekiel, it is, I do not rejoice in the death of the wicked, he means it. 
He, it, you know, he counts. I'm not saying Nando and Abihu were so bad. They obviously did at least one thing really bad. Bad enough. But the point that we're getting at is that they all matter to God. Yeah. God doesn't ignore them. He doesn't go, and Nadab and Abihu, they were they are not here anymore, so we're not gonna we're gonna skip them. The sons of Aaron, you know, or we're gonna stick with Itamar and Elazar because they're the ones who are still here. No, he names them because God, they're they're still valuable, they still had a purpose, they had a role to play. They get a special in fact, they actually the longest part, <laughs> that little 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 excerpt, you can find out they don't have kids, which is sad, but interesting. Um, and in this so the idea being that God God is, is counting them, he considers them valuable as well. As we get into the uh, the arrangement of the uh, the different tribes and groups and things, uh, sometimes we also get a highlight of the uh, um, bad company corrupts good morals. They point out that the uh, Kohathites are in the bottom here, and where we end up having a bit of an issue with uh, Korach is uh, he 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 gets quite a few support, a bit of support, quite a bit of support rather, from some of the people who live next to him. And neighbors. what his neighbors? His neighbors and the other tribes. Um, I want to say one of them is Reuben and yeah, yeah I think Simeon is the other one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's like basically the idea being it's like uh, you know it, um, yeah. uh, the two the two the two guys that kind of team team up with uh, Korach are the ones who live next to him. This is important. I mean, think about the people that you spend time with, people that you you enjoy company with. You need to be, you need to be asking the question: Are they people that are going to be growing you? Are they going to grow you more? Are they going to make you better? Can you make them better? Or is it, are you just going to get pulled down by them? And I think that's something that's important. Now, obviously, God's intention here was not that. I think God's intention was Reuben and Simeon have issues. <laughs> we need to get them close to the priests and let's get involved. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well. But the point is, take that, their swords away. <laughs> right. Um, but the point is that um, that you have to keep that in mind, especially when we talk about having kids. You know, who who are your kids spending time with? Who are you letting into your home? And all those types of things. Um, when uh, my father-in-law decided that it was time to uh, make sure that all of his daughters got married, his answer was to bring all the guys to him. You know, that yeah, probably was a pretty smart idea. Get all the guys here. You have complete control over what's going on, and um, you can kind of weed out the the ones that you didn't like so much, uh, scare them off. Um, Right, 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 right. Before you need to think about dating yeah. my daughter, you've got to teach all these men. Um, but the, uh, it worked so well. It did work really well. Um, it was worth it. Yeah. It so, was worth it. Uh, but thinking about the, those locations, because I think it's also kind of cool the way that God arranges the camps, too. I, 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 you, you kind of get that feeling that maybe part of the reason why he mixed and matched some of these tribes was to get them to bounce off each other, to grow from each other, to, to learn. Um, one of the other things I've heard stories of uh, is that apparently when you have more children than you have bedrooms, rearranging which kids are in which room with which kids to try to get them to, you know, influence each other in a good way and, and hope that, you know, this one has a strength, this one's got a weakness, put them together, uh-oh, now they both have the weakness, split them up, you know, whatever it might that be. That did not happen. <laughs> whatever it might be. To make sure that you, you can ma maximize their, their community. And I think that's something that, that God is doing here, too. Uh, let's see. Almost to the end. I think it's cool that God calls out each of the sons of Aaron and gives them each a task. Uh, for one, he uh, makes a point of saying, you're in charge of the people, basically. You take care of, you're the leader of the leaders. This is in chapter, uh, is chapter 4. That's not true, it's chapter 3. He's telling them, as he's going through all the different types of the tribes and so on, or the, the, the types of uh, Levites, 
he points out that um, Elazar is, is assigned to all the different people. Actually, the only one of the one son, not both. Firstborns, not that really. Um, and he also calls out, he gives Elazar the task of carrying all these really heavy things. The, the sages point out that he's in charge of the oil elimination, the incense spices, the meal offering, the anointment oil. This was apparently really heavy and kind of a miracle that he was able to carry it by himself, which of course is what they would say. I think it's cool that they, they point out that um, they, the verse they quote here uh, when they're talking about it, um, those who hope God and I shall their strength, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, they're taking it literally. I think it's cool that Elazar's name means God is my help. And, uh, and then here he is out there carrying all the heavy stuff by himself, or at least that's what it looks like, even if it's not really what's happening. Um, so yes, so we are into, we are into Bobby Bar, we're into Numbers, and we are now to the stage of reading lots and lots of Numbers. I hope as you continue to read about the different priesthoods and their uh, the, the different Levite families and what their assignments are, that you don't get bogged down in who's carrying wood and who's carrying blankets, that you uh, try to learn what what's this telling you, what's this mean to you. And I've got a couple more comments here. Yes, sir? Just real quick, one of the things that I was wondering about was, you know, it, it keeps emphasizing, like, you can't see how things get set up or you'll die, right? Like, it keeps saying that. And I was wondering if that sort of relates a little bit to why we can't see God, where it's like, you don't want to necessarily make it something that's common. It's like, mm -hmm. the more, the less you know about whatever it is, the more, like, mm -hmm. Holy, it seems. That's true. You know, all the people not seeing the inner workings except for just the high priest, like it I think it would continue to instill in you like this like almost like a fear of the unknown in a good way, where you're like, I have no idea what goes on there. All I know is like if I even go near it, I'm gonna die. So <laughs> That's like true. You, you have like this amazing reverence for it. And so I think it's kinda similar with Hashem where it's like we see we have a lot of manifestations and evidence of, of the outside and his workings and everything, but mm. not necessarily the inner workings. Right. And perhaps that's supposed to instill greater reverence. Mm. I would argue that something set apart is used less frequently or is special by the fact that it's set apart. If it's set apart to the point where you never even see it, that's pretty special. That's pretty set apart. Yeah. I mean, just anything else? Was that it? Yeah, I, I just, you know, to your point of not getting bogged down with who's carrying what and all of that, I do think it's important to remember that every time we read from now on, every time we go back and read that, well, actually, we can't go back. They didn't move yet. Every time we read that, you know, the cloud lifted up or the, or the, the fire moved or whatever, and they packed up and followed, and then it stopped and they unpacked and. They packed and unpacked every single time. And there, there seems to be a lot of packing. There seems to be a lot of stuff to break down and set up and, and all of that. And, uh, and the, the part we read about here is so important that there was an amazing order to it. It really was a military precision kind of thing. Having been in the military, I can tell you, to get a whole bunch of guys to do exactly right every time is pretty tough. Yeah, absolutely. Don't go in here until they're done packing. <laughs> right. Don't even peek until they're done packing. They'll come out and tell you they're done packing. You know, it's just, what, what do they do in the meantime? Smoke break. You know, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> Smoke a, break. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to kind of picture. These are regular guys like us 
and they they have such a specific order of what needs to be done and who needs to carry and I did my deal I packed it into the I wrapped it with a blue blanket I packed it into this funky dolphin thing and or whatever it is you know this was it Takash Takash hide thing you know and and I'm done okay you go and get my stuff no wait he's not done with his wait I was only kidding you know I I can't imagine. I thought it was cool. They took the ashes with them. Oh, it's like, whoa. There we go. That, that stands out. They get, they get some purple, you know, blanket or whatever the to carry it. Purple blanket. Like, okay. Oh, this is important. No, my point earlier was, that, was not to say no, don't pay attention to the details. This is, I think it's important anytime you read the Torah, remember, this actually happened. One of the mistakes sometimes we make when we read the Torah is we try to get all mystical on it and we forget about the fact that it was real. This really happened. These people in a very hot, sweaty desert were trying to pack up and carry stuff. And that is not easy. And they did it because God told them to. You notice that all the problems that the people of Israel had in the wilderness, the things that they messed up on, it never says, and God told them to do this kind of detailed and complicated maneuver. Well, they didn't do that very well. No, it always said that exactly as God commanded Moses, which is pretty impressive. Um, so when you read through it, enjoy, I mean, focus on it. Remember that it's real. But at the same time, try not to get bored. It's my only point. That you try to get so, you know, the desire, it's, it's sometimes you get slow to us, uh, I say bogged down because it's like you can you can lose sight of the fact that there's relevance to you. So do the both. Remember that it's real, and also be looking, digging, researching, trying to figure out what does this mean? Why does God have this here? Last comment, and that is that um, while you're while we're doing that, we need to remember that we're only reading about setting up and breaking down the tabernacle. Merari not only had to do the stuff that he had to do, but he had his own tent <laughs> and his own stuff that he had to pack up. So it's. It's, it's amazing to, to be called into the service of Hashem is, is a big deal. Indeed. There's, there's not just the service of ministry, but there's also our own families and our own stuff and, and so forth. And, and I think that uh, in Christendom, we've seen a lot of heartache and a lot of problems with preachers' kids and missionaries' kids right. and all that. As the work of ministry sometimes overshadows that work of of uh, family. And right, now the death is supposed to go together. You bet. It's up to you. Absolutely. All righty. Okay. Dad, if you close that prayer. Father, we are thankful for you that you do care about the individual. You have indeed given great significance in your economy to uh, the individual person. Thank you that you have not considered us only a number, but that the numbers always uh, add up perfectly, uh, that you have a people that are called to you, Father. Thank you for the blessing that we have in seeing that. We know it because you have showed it to us, Father. We know it because we have experienced it in our own lives. Thank you for that blessing. Father, I pray that you might give us a good and restful Shabbat. Thank you for the festival of Shavuot. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Joshua, would you press stop? Good Shabbos, everyone.